0: Coming up on this week's episode of the Real Lives Podcast with Radu Poultenenio.
1: You have to know the fact that I left with 900 Canadian bo- dollars in my pocket when I started out to do this journey. Realities, you know, you you get to understand things from very different points of view. You know, you, you just extract yourself from that mainstream society. At the time I was thinking of marrying a girl and when that thing didn't work out I came back to the idea of bike touring seeing more of the world but of course the journey is the most important one the destination is only there to to guide you through that journey i thought it would take me nine months and i would cover only twenty four thousand kilometers just by the look of it i knew he was a dangerous person he has this knife on his hand and he tells me oh come and get it
0: just before we get into the episode i want to say a big welcome to the new edition of the podcast the real lives podcast James to speak to real people to tell the real stories behind what they do. Now, this change came about due to the fact that I didn't feel that Quantum told the real story of what the podcast was about and the kinds of people I wanted to speak to. So, big change... Everything's changed and it's it's for the better. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Radu Poltenenno. You'll find his links down below. Also remember to like, subscribe, share the podcast with anyone who may be interested as that's the only way we can grow the podcast. So thank you all for the support and I hope you enjoy. Radu, you spent three years and three months cycling from Dead Horse, Alaska to Ushuaia, is it? Ushuaia. Ushuaia. Oh, Ushuaia. Ushuaia. In Spanish,
1: that's what they call it. Ushuaia.
0: Okay, so in Argentina, which was the equivalent of about thirty-five thousand kilometers, you also travelled three thousand plus kilometers across New Zealand, and then cycled fifteen plus thousand kilometers across Australia. So the question, the first question that I wanted to ask you was, what is your why behind all of this?
1: Oh, it's probably very diverse why I would say. Uh first of all I've always been close to nature since I was a little kid. I grew up in a in a uh, in a town in Romania that was close to the Carpathian Mountains and I would take all these strolls and I'll do all these uh nature walks all around uh my my hometown. So I've always been close to nature and I've always been curious to see what's beyond the limit of my hometown. What's beyond my country and what's beyond my continent and there's also a lust for you know um adrenaline i would call that the adrenaline of the unknown yeah. that's another big why because you know i'm always i know that by um taking a certain path or by doing a certain expedition or a certain adventure i never really know what's gonna happen around the corner and that's part of what i called or that is the adrenaline of the unknown um so yeah and 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 there's a genuine curiosity to uh see the world and see it in a very adventurous and in a very um unique way i'm not very interested in motorized trips because i know it's not it doesn't expose me to the same level of uh or to the same depth yeah. of uh, of things, and um, yeah, and it's always it always feels good to be out there and do all these adventures. You know, it's just mm. um, I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to pinpoint one single reason why. Mm. There's many, there's many, but the adrenaline of the unknown, um, as I call it, is probably the uh, the biggest factor that. Um, lays into the why here
0: so when you let's take it back to when you were a kid and so during that time what was sort of the if you could pinpoint a moment that sort of pushed you down this path of exploration and adventure what would it be
1: just curiosity just curiosity I was I remember I was 10 years old and I would take the train and go 60 kilometers away from my hometown to my to the next to the next city Uh, and to my family and to all my friends and my colleagues at the time of my primary school that seemed just crazy you know doing that but I realized very soon that that was something that I love doing just seeing what's what's around what's beyond the lines that people draw you know because we live you know in in a world that is dominated by borders by you know different limits that we uh, we grow up with. You know, so I was always curious to see what's beyond beyond there. And you know, I I I grew up with my grandparents in Romania, and uh, um, my my grandfather was a big inspiration in you know going and doing all these nature walks. Mm-hmm. You know, just going picking up mushrooms or medicinal plants. It's it's very it's very uh, usual actually in Romania to do that. Um, especially back in the nineties, you know, it was very, very common to, to see people doing that. And, and so I, I grew up, uh, with, um, knowledge of the local plants, with the knowledge of the local fauna, with the knowledge of, uh, the local mushrooms, you know, <laughs> and just, you know, just being out there in nature, it was so, so reward, uh, so rewarding, you know, mm. because it's, you know, I think when you're a kid, you, everything is new for you, right? Yeah. So everything is exciting. But, you know, as you grow older and older, um, you kind of, like, try to fit into some patterns and into a routine. So that excitement goes away. Whereas nature or taking these uh, walks and later on adventures in nature provides you that excitement. So there's always something new that awaits you around the corner. You don't know exactly what. Um, You hope for the best, you know. But, you know, I don't mind having so-called negative experiences, you know, because that are part of the overall Mm. adventure. Um, So anything that comes around the corner is a surprise and is providing you that excitement that most people don't really get to have in their everyday life because of routine, you know, routine is the one that kills all of that excitement. So,
0: yeah. (laughs) Routine is a scary thing. For me, I have like this... Push and shove relationship with routine in the sense that I need it, like I really require it for my for like my peak performance in whatever I do. I need routine because it allows me to just perform at my best constantly. But also, so like I've recently started what you would call your typical typical nine to five, and that's scary for me because. That's one thing that's all, I don't know why, but as a kid when I grew up, it just, it's always scared me. But it's, I don't know, for performance, I really need it. But then for work, I think it's, that's not what works for me. Do you, if that, does that make sense? And yeah. I think sometimes that's where we, we lose it. And that's what I've come to realize is that, you know, routine isn't necessarily in the nine to five or that kind of route through work. Routine could be like just getting up at the same time every morning and, you know, the same routine in the morning that sets your day up right, having things in place, like a checklist of like, I'm going to do this, this and this today. And that's probably the biggest thing I've learned about routine. But for yourself, do you use like a routine in terms of for your like mental performance in comparison to like obviously the nine to five?
1: Oh, yeah, there's there is absolutely. I mean, you can't really get rid of routine. But it can also be a routine in, into an environment of into an ever-changing environment. I would, I would call it, you know. So of course I, I, I have my my routine. I don't start a day of riding a bike or uh, you know hiking without my coffee in the morning. <laughs> that is definitely a routine that I've got uh, that I've got there. And I really I really take my time and I really enjoy um, the new scenery. That I wake up in every day, you know, uh, having that coffee in the morning, so that gets me started. That is, that is routine in, a, mm-hmm. uh, in a way, you know. And of course, you you know, you have certain goals for the day. Uh, say, I want to ride seventy k's today, or hundred k's, or you know, I want to get there, and I want to get this done today. Of course, there is, um, there is routine in what I'm doing, you know. But it's a it's a routine um, that, as I was saying, that establishes itself in an ever-changing environment or in an ever-changing, um, uh, situation that has a lot of variety in it. So that, um, you know, routine is good as, as long as it doesn't, um, as it doesn't like, uh, make you stuck in a certain environment or in a certain situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, we definitely need routine, but, A healthy one i would say you know um and um yeah i mean it's just um it's just there yeah Mm.
0: so we'll go back as well because you said as a kid obviously that sort of adventurous side was always there you're always wanting to go into the city and what have you but you then emigrated to canada at 15 didn't you yeah so moving from those home comforts of where grandparents are where family is to then the other side of the world to canada what were the initial emotions as a kid then? was that Because I feel like I can guess how you would feel and that would be just purely excited.
1: I was excited at the beginning, but I didn't know what it meant to be living in a different country and in a completely different culture. Mm. right? So I also happened to be immigrating to Quebec, which has a very uh, unique status within Canada. So you're actually, you know, as a kid I was... I thought about Canada as being an English-speaking country, very, uh, very like, very much like the U.S. And when I landed in Quebec, I actually had to learn French and I had to be, I had to integrate myself in a French-speaking society, uh, which has its own challenges. Mm. Uh, you know, so on the one hand side, you you're immigrating, you're thinking you're immigrating to an English-speaking country, and um, a culture that is as i was saying very similar to the one in the u.s and the rest of canada but actually quebec is very is very different so um yeah it was it was in a way a challenge a good one i would say because that um uh open open my horizons and opened also my link um my, uh, linguistics yeah. skills, I, it upgraded me linguistically speaking. So I, I learned French, I integrated into French, uh, local culture and, you know, in the end it's, uh, the more languages you speak and the more cultures you, you, you understand the better it is. Mm-hmm. Um, the more complex of a character you become, you know? So, um, that was a good thing in the end and that opened a lot of, uh, possibilities, you know? Um, I don't know. I I would have probably still be an adventurer, an explorer, uh, even if I would have never left Romania. But I don't. I think by immigrating to Canada, that opened a lot more, uh, a lot more doors and a lot more horizons for me. You know.
0: I, I guess, like so, for example, me. Like I've been abroad previously. I've traveled and stuff like that. But when. I moved here from the UK understanding the cultural differences in day-to-day life like when you go and travel somewhere you kind of you know you see bits but then you move on you're never really in one place for long enough to see the differences so mm-hmm. it's kind of like being here made me realize there's so many much more to what I'm used to at home like even though it's two English-speaking countries yeah. it's so different in so yeah. many ways yeah. so yeah, it's, it, for me, it's a really interesting one because you've obviously always had that curious side to you where you wanted to see what that more is. But I guess that just brought it out in you probably quicker than what you would have imagined if you'd stayed in Romania.
1: Yeah, and it also gave me... Well, I had a hard time actually feeling fully Canadian for a long time, you know, and uh, being fully part of that society. Um And that's another layer of my later travels and my later adventures. Uh, Because when you, I think it's a challenge for most immigrants moving from their homeland to a different society because they might have their reasons to do it, but most of the people that decide to do so, I would say they do it for economical reasons. You know, just having more opportunities in their new country than in their you know in their homeland you know so it's a challenge in general you know immigrating and fully uh fully accepting and fully uh feeling part of that society of that new society that you land uh, in and um that was definitely a challenge for me and i think my later travels and my later adventures helped me a lot open up a lot more to just you know being that romanian guy who immigrated with his parents to canada and uh, settled there. I always felt there's more than just that. Yeah, you know, and you have your own doubts and your own, you know, uh, perception of things. But those all changed. All these, let's say, negative perceptions, and um, you know, um, just you know, um, this difficulty to integrate into the new society all went away when I open up to the rest of the world. Yeah. And, you know, just going from Alaska to Patagonia and learning an additional two new languages, Spanish and Portuguese, and talking to all these peoples and going through all these, you know, in, you know, just sleeping in, in strangers' houses and, um, you know, having all these amazing interactions... You realize all of a sudden that you don't have to be Canadian, you don't have to be Romanian. You're just a world citizen, you know? Yeah. So Danny all makes sense, you know? It mm. just didn't make sense to me at the beginning, you know, because you come from a very well established identity as Romanian, you know. I I went to primary school back in Romania, you know, you get thoughts and things you know you 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 build up a perception about the world and a perception about who you are and it's just so hard to just change that one to trade it for something else you know yeah at least that was my own experience you know but when you open up to a lot more than just two different cultures i think you you can you you can you can fit into anywhere and Mm. everywhere you know and that's what that's the good thing about Traveling and and you know uh, doing in doing it in a genuine um, adventurous way where um, you don't stay in hotels you have contact with the locals every day uh, you work with them you you know you just hang out with them mm. and and you learn from them yeah so I think um, just to resume it into. Um, You know, into uh, something um, more concise, I would say that, um, you know, um, traveling in general, uh, no matter how you do it, opens you up to the world and opens you up to understand um, layers or cultural layers, I would call them, that you wouldn't in a situation where you just moved from your homeland to a different one. Um, I don't. I don't mean to say that you can do it just by trading a country for another, but it's much easier when you have this big picture coming in, you know, yeah. um, and all this culture and all these new languages, and you being open to, towards them, you know, mm-hmm. because you have to be open, you have to be willing to learn and to be challenged, mm-hmm. and that's what traveling did to me. And now I really feel like a world citizen. I wouldn't, you know, yeah, people call me Romanian. Some people call me Romanian. Some people call me Canadian. I accept both. I'm both. I have two passports. But, you know, in reality, I feel like a world citizen that could fit in anywhere and could, you know, could mm. could be fine living and, you know, and, and um, yeah, living in any part of the world.
0: Yeah, the, this idea of, you know, the world citizen is something I really love because, so I'm not sure if you're aware of yes theory, um, no. which is like a group of people who on YouTube, they basically created this YouTube channel surrounded by the theory. If you say yes to something, good things will arise. If you say yes to anything, good things will arise. And there's one guy who it runs that channel. And so they originated in Canada, but mm. one of them's Egyptian. And because on, you know, in this, Im- th- these imaginary borders that we create, he could not go on most of, the, I'd say, ninety percent of the trips that they did, because his passport was Egyptian. Mm. It meant that he was almost in, instantly refused to travel into most countries because of this ridiculous border system. That yeah, we do have like, in some ways it makes sense, but in ways like that it doesn't because it, you know, just because you're from a country doesn't mean you you fit the ideology of what the world has of that country. Mm. And so he, he was one of the lucky ones where he could go and buy a passport from one of these countries that you can buy into. And I think he spent something like $150,000 on it. But it's not something that people should have to do. If you're, you know, if you're Egyptian, if you're Syrian, if you're English, if you're Romanian, we should all have the ability to go and experience other cultures and experience other countries for what they are and what they can offer because we can all learn from it. Absolutely, you know with a lot of the problems that are happening in the world right now it's because people don't want to be aware of what actually is possible in other places in the world yeah they just think that where they are or
1: what they're doing is the be all end all of what is yeah it's stereotypes Mm. it's a world of stereotypes and you see it well you know by spending so much time in nature i actually get to see uh a lot of a lot more genuine sides of us and of me and of everything that lives on this planet <laughs> and exists on it. But as soon as I come, in, come back in contact with, um, you know, Western society and big cities and, and you know, the, the mainstream society, those stereotypes pop up. And they pop up into different, very various aspects of, of everyday life, not just, you know, oh, he's an Egyptian and he's this and he's that. We have it, you know, from what we were to, you know, our creeds and beliefs, it's all there, you know? Mm. So I think that's another really interesting side of, um, you know, uh, deciding to take all these wild hikes and, uh, wild adventures around the world is that you actually get immersed into different realities. You know, you, you get to understand things from very, um, different points of view, you know, you, you just extract yourself from that mainstream society and then you get exposed to, I wouldn't call them views, but you get exposed to just different aspects of being, you know, Hmm. of existence, of anything you want to call it, you know. uh, And that sort of like makes you clash back with Hmm. these stereotypes when you come back in contact with them because, you know, it's just, it's just ridiculous, you know. In the end,
0: yeah. The so we'll, we'll go back to when you were in Canada because on on that topic of you know um, stereotypes, you initially took the stereotypical sort of you know nine to five office route in terms of you went to you went to university, you did software engineering, mm-hmm. graduated, were on the route to a nine to five job. So so why did you not? take that route why did you take the leap to
1: go and travel and adventure um so i back in 2013 i was part of a movement so that was two years prior to me graduating Mm. software engineering at mcgill university in montreal so that summer i had been a student i've done like a student exchange in copenhagen in denmark and i met this other fellow romanian Student there, um, who was leading a protest um, opposing a gold mine in Romania, and he had done a bike trip back in 2012 from Copenhagen to uh, Rosia Montana is the name of the the place where they, um, where a Canadian company actually was, uh, you know, uh, think about. Building a mine and destroying all the uh, cultural uh, things around there, mm. uh, because that that area had been had been mined by the Romans two thousand years ago, over two thousand years ago, and there's all these um, historical galleries that they would blow up, and you know they would build these uh, huge pits to extract uh, in a massive, inhumane way all the gold there. You know, um, so all of the Local history would get erased, and you know that was just that was just horrible. You know, so he took that uh, he took that trip the the previous year, and he wanted to do it again in 2013. So I thought about um, you know joining him for the cause, and I rallied two other friends of mine, and we did this trip through Scandinavia and um, parts of Eastern Europe. Uh, that you know was just an eye opener for me. What of what um, bike touring and uh, adventure cycling means, you know, because prior to that, I I had been doing other trips like hitchhiking across Europe and you know taking trains and doing all these all these other smaller trips in especially in Europe, you know, um, because I would spend most of the summers in Romania, so mm-hmm. um, yeah, I was doing I was doing things around Romania, and yeah, and that twenty thirteen trip was an eye opener and. You know, I still had two years uh, left to, to graduate, went back to, to Canada after that. And, um, and 2015 comes, that's the year when I'm about to graduate. Other time, I was thinking of marrying a girl. That thing didn't work out. And when that thing didn't work out, I came back to the idea of bike touring, seeing more of the world. And I thought at the time, what would be the craziest bike ride that you can do around the world? Cycling the Americas from top to bottom. <laughs> I had been watching this documentary of Mark Beaumont, a guy, a Scottish guy who smashed twice the world record of going around the world on a bike, and uh, and he did the Americas as well back in 2009. And I thought that was cool. I thought, man, if there would be something big that I wanted to do on a bike, that would be cycling the Americas from top to bottom. So there you go, you know, it's uh, January of 2015, um, my marriage plans don't work out, I'm about to graduate in a few months, so I like, well, I think that's it, I will be cycling the Americas, and that's the moment when I start like, announcing what I want to do on my Facebook page, and starting preparing the trip, you know, so it was basically a combination of different reasons, and the most important one being that I wanted to do something different and I wanted to see the world and I wanted to challenge myself, see if I'm capable to ride all these big miles, you know, and go through all these wild areas, you know, where people scare you of, you know, being attacked by bears and pumas and mm. jaguars and cougars and you name it, you know, we grow up as a society with all these fears, you know, and, of. Uh, you know, not knowing if you're capable to take such a huge challenge. You know, and at the other, uh, on the other hand, I wasn't really seeing myself working in an office nine to five, so I didn't really want to take a job and you know just grow, um, grow in a company. I didn't. I just you know, I'm very, um, I'm very, I'm a very motivated person, hmm. but at the same time, I'm very independent. You know, so I didn't really think at a time that I would be a good fit into an office, yeah. into an established, you know, environment sort of thing. So, um, here we go, you know. Uh, I slowly start, uh, you know, writing emails and trying to get a few sponsors and trying to see how, how would that work, you know. Yeah. Because it's one thing to go, you know, in a two-month, bike training around europe around scandinavia and in eastern europe you know there's it you know it's nice and it's easy but it's a completely different thing about thinking of riding the americas from top to bottom and there's not a lot of information that you can find about it you know you can just you know you can probably know about five ten percent of what's to come you can you know take a look at the you know at the at the map and Roughly throw a line through it, <laughs> but you don't really know what's out there and there's you know there's plenty of um aspects that come into play you know there's also the stereotypes again, we're talking about stereotypes, right so you start telling people around that you're gonna cycle the Americas and you're gonna cycle across uh a really dangerous terrain like northern Mexico or mm. the Central American countries or Venezuela or Colombia, you know, when you, when you say that to the regular Joe <laughs> that lives in a city, he's going to be like, wow, you're crazy, man. <laughs> you know, I had a lot of support at the time from my godmother, who has been a mentor for me all, all throughout my, um, you know, my adolescence and my, my, you know years in my early years in university you know it's a it's a great friend of mine and um she baptized me you know Mm. so she's my she's my godmother georgiana and um she was very supportive of 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 my trip but she also raised concerns about me going through all these regions you know just like my parents did and 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 so on and so forth you know but you know you have to tell yourself is that what you really want to do go for it. You know, if you know 5, 10, 15, let's say 20%, you can't really know more than 20% of what's to come. You just have to go with it and yeah. have faith in yourself and have, you know, curiosity. You got you got to arm yourself with a lot of curiosity and with a lot of openness to yeah. take on new challenges because that's what such a huge journey is all about. Mm. Being willing to take new challenges. Like willing to take new challenges and, and, and just being open to be out there and, 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 and solving problems. It's also about solving problems. How do I get from there to there? What's the best route? What are the challenges of me going through there? You know? So you have to figure all that. But you don't have to figure it out at the beginning because that's what people ask me. is like, how do you plan for such a trip? You, know? I don't, think how they, do, you don't really do. I mean, you know what, what your objective is. Mm. And you have to have an objective. I strongly believe in having an, an objective. It's not the main thing. The main thing is the trip and those challenges that come yeah, on those years that you're going to spend on the road. But having an objective, having a goal, whatever you want to call it, objective goal, you know, it's the structure that allows you to have all these experiences, you know, so... I had a strong goal. I wanted to cycle the Americas. And that was there from the very beginning. I wanted to get from the top to the bottom of the Americas. A lot of things change during the trip. But that goal is very important to me. And it's not, you know, I believe in the goal and I believe in you being flexible. Not about the goal itself, but about how you get to the goal. Yeah,
0: it's. That's actually really interesting because I was listening to a podcast this morning and towards the end of it, um the host, his name's Ali something, um, he basically said he said about a book he'd read and it was basically the journey versus the destination and he asked his guest which are you, which side do you prefer, the journey or the destination. So for
1: you, which is it for you? Is it journey or destination? Absolutely the journey, but the journey doesn't or, I wouldn't say it doesn't exist, but doesn't doesn't fully come into into existence without the destination. That yeah. would be my definition. <laughs> I would use both, mm. the destination and the journey. But of course, the journey is the most important one. The yes. destination is only there to, to guide you through that journey. Mm. That's all there is. That's, that's the goal. So I knew from the very beginning that I wanted to get from that horse all the way down to Ushuaia, you know. Actually, got it for the south in Ushuaia, <laughs> but Ushuaia was my goal, you know. Yeah. And and I thought back in 2015 when I was planning that that adventure, I thought it would take me nine months, mm. and I would cover only 24,000 kilometers. And in the end, I covered a lot more miles than that, and I spent a lot more time on the road, allowing myself to be flexible and to add different other challenges to my trip and, and see more than what I set out to, you know, and, and do more than I set, I set out to. And that was, that was very nice, you know, in the end. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely spent more time in that trip than I, than I planned for, but it was yeah. worth it, you know, in the end.
0: So, obviously, a journey like that isn't a linear path. And it's evident in the fact that you planned for nine months and you were there for three years, three months. So it's yeah. like yeah. what I'm interested in with that is the is the mental side of it. So for you, when you know you're a year and a half into this expedition and the end still isn't in sight, are you okay with that? Because a lot of people when they set themselves goals are not okay. Where, you know it's usually around that halfway point it's quite tough and quite you know you have to be very resilient and to, to keep going so for you are, were you okay with the fact that you still had all this time left to go
1: so yeah so I think my my adventure across the America started as because you don't know you don't really know. when you haven't done anything like that anything big like that you don't know how to go about it. Yeah. I started off as thinking like, I'm a cyclist, so I have to do all these miles that I set out to do every day. And I have to cover all this distance, you know, and and that builds up and builds up as a burden, you know, in the end, you know, you have to, you know, you have to deliver, sort of, you know. Mm. But what's interesting is that slowly but surely, the adventure, like, The adventure switched from, you know, all these goal or, yeah, like all these goal-oriented adventure to more like a lifestyle adventure. Yeah. So it it slowly shifted into that. And that is probably what allowed me to be so comfortable spending all those years uh, solo Mm. riding my bike across the Americas, uh, across both North and South America, you know, because... My journey started in August of 2015 at the top of Alaska, uh, very close to the Arctic Ocean in that horse. And, you know, on the one hand, it was good to be there and be riding uh, the Dalton Highway, a very remote road uh, in, in Alaska at the beginning of August because uh, the flies were gone. The mosquitoes—I mean, the mosquitoes—is a real problem in in in, uh, in summertime. In uh, not the flies, the mosquitoes. Sorry, in in Alaska, and they were gone. The temperatures were beautiful. I had anything between zero degrees and twenty degrees, and that's just beautiful, beautiful temperature to ride your bike in. And you know, it was the weather was quite good, but that meant that I had to hurry up because the the winter was fastly. In, Approaching, you know, and I had still thousands of miles to go across the Rocky Mountains in, in Canada and the U.S. You know, I had at least seven thousand kilometers to go before I I would reach uh, a, a more friendly latitude, you know, in Mexico. So so that put me in a situation where I was literally running away from the bad weather trying to keep up ahead of the winter, you know, Mm. which eventually actually uh, hit me in in Montana when I crossed the border uh, back into the lower 48, into the U.S., you know. But I, you know, I I was lacking a way to get across Alaska and Canada in, in relatively good weather. But going across the U.S. for the next two months in November and December of 2015 was hell. It was so cold and I had all these... It was an El Nino year, so they had all these... Uh, crazy winter storms uh, snow storms across the divide you know and it was just crazy it was I felt like it was never ending you know and it was it was it was quite hard you know to to get across all North America in 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 winter time but once I reached the Mexican border you know I was still I still kept my goal you know I still wanted to reach Ushuaia, but it slowly changed into a lifestyle, or it's probably just me simply getting used to it, getting used to being on the road, you know, because it it takes a while to to get used to, you know, to be pitching your tent every day and be uh, flexible where you sleep, what you eat and what you do every day, you know, but it's also the people I meet, you know, like you cross the border from the US into Mexico and you, all of a sudden you're in a different world everybody's friendly, everybody's curious about you, you know, they're all, um, you know, inviting you um, in their homes and welcoming you, you know, and it's probably all this human warmth that I start feeling, you know, it's not just mm-hmm. the ice melting and the winter going away, mm-hmm. it's also the people that come into my life and they're just radiant, they have all this radiant energy, the people of Latin America, you know, and it I really started enjoying my, my journey, you know, I'm now away from anything as bad as the North American winter, you know, temperatures are friendlier, people are friendlier, um, I know I have a great journey ahead of me, so I slowly get used to it, and I start, like, liking it so much that, you know, I tell myself, oh, why not go there as well, why not, uh, do these miles extra miles to get there, climb that mountain, you know, see that volcano and have all these other experiences on the side, you know. So it it it, it eventually became a lifestyle, you know, that I I I got used to and I started really enjoying, you know. Yeah. The <clears throat> when I, I just wanted to add, when I finally got to Ushuaia three years later it almost felt like a mythical place because I knew that Guo was always there. I knew where Ushuaia was. I knew that I was going towards it. But, you know, delaying it so much and taking so much more time on the road, it almost felt like, holy crap, that place actually exists, you know, that yeah. I set out to reach, you know. It's, it almost felt like it was something out of the book, you know, out of the books mm. it almost feel like surreal
0: it's the fantasy
1: that's yeah and it. it's like oh i'm there you know mm.
0: it's, <laughs> yeah it's, it's something i'm always interested in is the the achievement of goals that people have spent so long trying to get to so for example i think it was michael jordan when he you know when he won everything he was kind of like what now <laughs> and that's what a lot of people struggle. That, like, I feel like you fit into this bracket of that high performance mindset and that aspect of like you know you set these massive goals which, for ninety nine percent of the population, are unachievable, and you set out to achieve them with every bit of your might. But when you reach, like, Ushuaia, was there almost a well? What now?
1: What ah? There was a now because. I met Irina, my current partner. So I knew I wanted to go back to Romania and meet her and spend some time and see, you know, like, see what life is. Mm. I mean, just experience other aspects of life, you know. It's not just about the adventure. It's not just about the travel. It's not just about setting goals and seeing and exploring wild places. It's also, you know, like, probably building a family or being close to someone, you know. A lot of what I see in the adventure travel world is a lot of... Um, lone wolves, you know, so I didn't want to, and I mean, I didn't want to, and I didn't see myself as ending up as a lone wolf that, you know, spends the rest of his life exploring things on its own, so I wanted to connect uh, with someone, you know, in the end, and you know, probably call it finding love, you know, <laughs> but um, yeah, so, so wouldn't, probably wouldn't have, wouldn't it have been for Irina out of just kept going I was thinking of maybe you know getting a ride to South Africa and then riding the Atlantic coast of Africa back into Europe and you know I would have probably chosen that path there was you know I I didn't really have something to go back to you know some people do and you know they take a crazy journey and they they do something nice and then they go back and have a normal life I didn't want to have a normal life and I didn't have something to go back to up until the moment when I realized there might be something more between me and Irina. She was following my, my journey at the time and, uh, we were talking for hours and, and, you know, and, and she became a confidant, you know, and stuff like that. And, and we got really close and I thought that there might be something more. So I went for it. Um, so there was, there was something awaiting me at the end of that journey in the Americas. And, and yeah, so I went I went for that, and here we are. We ended up doing that together, you know?
0: Yeah. The, so, during your trip
1: um, through the
0: Americas, you were robbed at knife point, if I'm correct, if I've read correctly.
1: Very correctly.
0: Yeah. Um, so, first of all, explain what happened, how that turned out. And then, secondly, when you experience extreme trauma like that, in a journey where you you know the end is in sight but not really how do you get up the next day and continue because a lot of people will turn around and go i'm just going home
1: yeah so that actually happened about halfway into my journey i was just about to finish north america i want north and central america some people like to call the whole thing north america some divided into north and central america anyways panama was the last country of central america and i was i was about to to cross into South America, to start riding my bike in Colombia. And um, and that just happened, you know. I was, um, I was relying at a time, you know. You have to know the fact that I left with 900 Canadian ba- dollars in my pocket when I started out to do this journey. Mm. So I was relying on people donating me small amounts on my website. I was writing all these stories about where I am, what I'm doing, you know, everything that happens throughout my trip and all the people uh that I meet and you know and I was very active on social media on Facebook and 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 especially my blog at the time. And um but I I wasn't someone uh able to afford hotels at the time. So for example, in the US I ended up sleeping in a lot of the post offices. I found out that they were actually heated and nobody would come there during nighttime and I would just um I'll just, uh, you know, put my uh, sleeping bag in there and have a cozy, warm night, you know. Uh, whereas in Panama, I found out that you could get hosted for free uh, by the firefighters. Okay. So I would rely on... And I, that actually kept on happening in a lot of other Latin American countries, like in Ecuador. The firefighters are... It's it's a volu- it's a Volunteer service, so they don't get paid for that, and it almost feels like a hot hostel that you're going to. They got all these bunk beds and cafeteria and everything, you know, that you can cook, and so it was really nice, you know. And um, and yeah, I mean, like I tried, uh, I try to get a to get hosted by the uh, firefighters in Panama City, but being such a big city, they're always they're not as they're not so keen to host you because. It's a city full of crime. You never know who you, who you're hosting, you know, like the the smaller the community, the more trust. Yeah. The more trustworthy the people are and the more open they are to host you. But once you get to such a big city as Panama City, it's you know, the trust is not, just not there, you know. So they refused me. And at that point, I was looking for a hostel. And as I was looking for a hostel, I actually ended up in one of the most dangerous uh parts of Panama City, you know, when you say Panama City, a lot of people think about skyscrapers, and all these, uh, rich Russians that hire their money, Mm -hmm. into obscure banks, and funds, and whatever you, um, um, whatever you, um, whatever that is, Mm -hmm. you know, and that is a reality of that city, but the other reality is that, more than half of the inhabitants live in like, um, basically, uh, just unlivable conditions, uh, very poor neighborhoods, um, slums, basically. Yeah. So I ended up in one of those, one of these slums, and I'm just riding my bike on that road at night. It was close to midnight, I think. And all of a sudden, there's a guy that looks so sketchy that just, you know, crosses my path. And he's, I, I can see him from far away, you know, and just by the look of it i knew he was a dangerous person mm. so i turned around my bike just before i reach him and just pedal as fast as i could away but he ended up actually stealing one of my panniers where i had all my all my clothes mm. you know all of my clothing was in there you know and i got so scared you know cuz i turned around he 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 just fetches it mm. and i i just stop for a second i look at him and he's like he has this knife on his hand and he tells me, oh, come and get it. And I'm like, what did he did?" No, <laughs> I've just got to run away and you have to think fast. Like, that's, mm. that's like one of those moments when, you know, you, you have to make up your mind like in a millisecond and yeah. I'm like, yeah, just run away, you know. Mm. <laughs> it's either you fight it or you flight it. I decided to just, you know, yeah. paddle as fast as I could. I, like, just around the corner I see a police car, I wave them down, they stop, I have a chat about uh, about what happened with them, and they're like, dude, we're not going there, we're never going there, it's too dangerous for us to go in that corner, so they end up um, allowing me to sleep on the floor in one of their rooms at the police station, and that was it, next day I was off off I went, and I kept going for the next, <laughs> for the next two years, mm-hmm. uh, for, for the next, uh, well, it was actually more than two years that I, I, I kept on going after that, I, that happened in, I think, if I'm not mistaken, in June or July of 2016. And my journey ended in November, October, November of 2018, you know? And, um, you know, I remember like, you feel like, you feel like shit the next morning. Sorry. But, you feel like, you know, whenever you get robbed or whenever something like that happens, you feel like you've done something wrong. Yes. So I can feel a bit like what might go through uh, people who get abused or something like that. That's exactly what you feel the next morning is as if you've done something wrong. And I remember like I got robbed and that was like the first time I was getting properly robbed because prior to that, I've only been... I've only been. Uh, Um, stolen a phone in mexico so as i was riding my bike somebody just picked my phone with my earphones on so he used actually the cable from the earphones to snap it from me as i was riding my bike he followed me on a motorcycle but there was nothing you know compared to that when you Mm -hmm. see a guy with a knife just you know it's just so scary and so traumatizing in a way yeah and 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 you know you just feel like you've done something wrong, but then you realize, oh well, I didn't. I just that just happened, you know. And that's actually part of, you know, you have to when you take such journeys, you have to actually accept the fact that you might go through some of these, you know,
0: the traumatizing experiences, the
1: traumatizing experience. And that wasn't the only one in in, in French Guyana. That uh, that was actually the scariest thing that happened throughout my America's journey I had three kids uh, surrounding me on again at night time as the shops in it was in Kourou in French Ghana which is actually a territory of France in South America and I was in Kourou just just got to um, you know just finish my my um, my ride for the day and as I as I, as I just arrived in the in the town, um, I was looking for Wi-Fi, you know, and I was relying on, you know, posting about my trip, you know, and, you know, I've always, I was always looking for places where I could get some free Wi-Fi, hmm. And as I was like browsing through my phones and as, you know, notifications were coming in, they just shut the, the store where I was, uh, picking the Wi-Fi from. It was actually a restaurant, sorry. And, um, and a couple of minutes later, I see all these kids going up and down the road on, the, on their BMX bikes. Yeah. And at some point, when everything looks like shot on the road, nobody's around, they surround me, and they uh, they first asked me to give them my phone, which I thought I might actually give them, the, you know, because they look quite scary, the kids. They're probably 16, 17-year-old kids, you know. Okay, yeah. And... Um, and then they actually changed their demand to give me everything. They simply told me in French, Donne moi tout," which means "Give me everything." and And they pull out a gun. And I just at that point, I think I got so mad at them asking me everything that I thought I might just, you know, I'm, I was willing to risk my life, and I wasn't just. You know, I just got so mad that, you know, they just try to take advantage of me. <laughs> and I got so mad about it that I, I just, you know, I pushed one of them and off I went. And I was literally expecting the bullet to follow me. It never happened. We eventually got to a, um, to a square uh, that had lights on, you know, and people selling different, you know, foot street and stuff. Um, so they disappeared Back to where they came from, but um, that was quite scary. And on the other hand, I wasn't willing to give them everything because I was on a low budget. I wouldn't afford to buy a new bike, and I wouldn't even have where to buy a new bike from. It's so hard to get your hand on on a good bike in South America, you know. Later on in my journey, I had my fork, um, my fork, my fork broke, and I had to wait a month to get a new one from my partners in Romania you know from Crossbike, and um you know I knew that or I felt you know you, you can't really control your emotions when that happened you know yeah but what came out at that very moment was like oh they are actually gonna end my trip that's my lifestyle that's my you know that's my adventure I'm not gonna let you do it you know <laughs> Yeah, so it's like
0: everything at that point.
1: It's yeah, like... I mean, like I'm so attached to my things. Mm. I'm so attached to my bike, and I'm usually a person that you know, you 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 just sort of like build a relationship with your yeah. with your gear and your your things, you know. So I wasn't willing to give that all up, you know. And and I got so mad, and I just I just ran away, you know. Mm. I was like, well, whatever, you know. If the bullet falls, that's it. Yeah, you know. <laughs>
0: It's such a crazy experience, like, I can't even... Like, I've been mugged before, and that was bad. Mm. But then, to then be held at knife point, and also be held at gunpoint... Yeah. It's something I can't even imagine, because I remember when I got mugged, that feeling of, like, you wake up the next day, you feel like shit. There's just, like, you don't want to start your day, you don't want to go and do anything. And then, you know, just on another level, I just... I feel like there there must be some sort of adrenal fatigue after that yeah you know because with that it's like that there's a moment mm -hmm. where your life could just the second
1: time around after what had happened in Panama and now in in in, in French Guiana, I was ready to take a different approach the next morning so I, I took out my phone and I wrote a lengthy post of what happened on Facebook which I didn't do for uh after what happened in Panama so you know you 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 sort of like build a custom to those things and then you know how to deal with them much better than they, when they come around for the second or third time or, you know, uh, when they come around the next time, you know, yeah. but that's not the only danger I went through. So there's this sort of like human interactions, you know, uh, or human dangers, but there's also the natural dangers that come into play in such a, um, you know, in such a lengthy, uh, adventure and, you know, I had moments in, I had a moment in uh, in Bolivia where I thought I might die. Coming up in part two of the Real Lives podcast with Radu Poltonenio I was just crossing between 5,900 and 6,000 meters of altitude. And I got caught in this, in this massive, massive snowstorm with lightning and thunder and you name it around me. And, and there's nowhere to hide. There's no rocks, no... No shelter no nothing you know you're just so exposed you're you're facing death it's the adrenaline of the unknown that keeps you going and keeps you curious and and you know keeps you motivated about taking this adventures your will is rolling and you don't know what's waiting for you around the corner
0: just before you leave I hope you enjoyed that episode with Radu you part one part two is coming next Monday at 6 a.m. GMT 3 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time So please remember to like, subscribe, share the podcast with anyone who may be interested. Really appreciate all the support and I'll see you next week for another video.